Good morning. It is, again, a wonderful day to be in the house of the Lord. It is wonderful to be gathered. We have so much to be thankful for, so much to celebrate and to praise God for, and yet at the same time, so many things that we need to continue to pray for, asking the Lord for guidance and for wisdom. We are back in our study here in First Timothy, this is our series that we've called Letters from the Pastor. Now we have obviously walked through Titus together already and today we are going to wrap up chapter one of First Timothy and then we're going to continue to move ahead with Paul's writing to Timothy and to the church at Ephesus. Now again, we've already seen by this point, whether we were reading in Titus or earlier in First Timothy, we've seen Paul go hard after false teachers and false teaching. And uh, the reality is Paul is going to remain relentless in the remainder of this letter to root out any issues that plague the church. But now before he goes any further, we actually find Paul here in our text today, not necessarily hitting the pause button, but rather giving Timothy and the church some truth that they can hold on to. And by truth, we're talking capital T, God-honoring biblical truth. Now that's interesting because it's at this point that we need to ask ourselves, what is truth? You see, we live currently in a society and a a cultural climate that is questioning everything that we believe to be true. You see, we now live in a time where history is now being rewritten. We are living in a time where doctors and professional opinions can no longer be counted upon because of how much they contradict one another. We are living in a time where even video itself can be told to or shown to tell a particular story. And we live in a time where numbers, now mind you, we used to say numbers do not lie. But now we're living in a time where numbers can be manipulated to fit a certain narrative. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, where is the believer in Christ to turn to in a time such as this? Well, I believe personally that Paul actually addresses the question directly within our passage today. You see, the church at Ephesus found itself in a similar situation where upon hearing multiple false teachers over and over and over again, they had now begun to believe the lies that they were being taught. And so Paul, after calling out these false teachers once already in 1 Timothy, now turns the attention to what he will call in his own words a trustworthy saying. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I would invite you now to turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1, and we will begin reading in verse 12. Once you have found your place in the Word of God, and if you can and you are able, I would invite you now to stand in honor of the reading of the Word. Now again, these are Paul's words to Timothy. Paul's words to Timothy the pastor, to the church at Ephesus. This is what Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord. Because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. 
And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason. That in me, as the, the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenius and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you right now thanking you so much for your word today. Father, we thank you for your truth that is found in your word. And Father, we pray that in these next few moments that we have together, God, we pray that through the study of your word, we ask that you and you alone would be glorified. Father, as we just sang, speak, O Lord. So God, we ask that whatever may be distracting us, whether in heart or in mind, Father, push those things aside so that we can focus on you. Prepare our hearts for what you have today. Father, we thank you again for the opportunity that we've had to worship you today. We thank you for the opportunity we've had to, to worship you in song, to worship you through uh, the spoken word, but then also to be able to worship you now through the study of your word. And again, Father, we pray that as we move forward in this time together, Lord, may you and you alone be glorified. Jesus, we love you, we thank you, and we praise you. And it's in your precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Now, we've already seen Paul call out the false teachers. In fact, Paul has done this multiple times, not only in Titus, but we've also already seen him do this immediately in 1 Timothy. And so what Paul's going to do now is he's going to turn his focus back to Jesus Christ. And ultimately, what we're going to see Paul do in this text is he is going to share his own personal testimony. You see, Paul's conversion story ultimately leads to triumphant praise of both who God is and what it is that God has done in the life of Paul. So when we read this text today in verses 12 through 20, what we have is Paul giving us one of the most concise, clear, and compelling descriptions of the gospel of Jesus Christ, or better yet, the good news of Jesus. And yet right in the middle of this text, in verse 15, Paul is going to give us the central purpose and mission of Jesus Christ, which we will later see is also the purpose and the mission of the church. And so for our passage today, we too can say that this text has now become a part of what is a trustworthy saying, which is the gospel itself in its entirety. 
Now, when we look again at verses 12 through 17, we see that according to Paul, the gospel should be celebrated. In fact, in verse 12, Paul writes, He judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Now, Paul opens by thanking Jesus Christ for what it is that he has done in Paul's life. Now, Paul was not made a believer because of anything that he had ever done or anything that he was going to do. In fact, Paul already acknowledges that he has nothing to offer to God. You see, Paul's effectiveness as a missionary did not depend upon his past. His effectiveness as a missionary did not depend upon his natural talent, nor did it depend on his first-rate education, nor was Paul following the next latest great Christian fad within the word or within the world excuse me rather what Paul was doing here is Paul is acknowledging that he was spiritually empowered by the call of Jesus Christ. This is why Paul is able to say to the church in Philippi, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, um, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. You see, Paul realizes that what he has, that what he has done, and what he can do is all because of what Jesus Christ has done in him and what Jesus is still doing through him. You see, for us today as believers in Christ, we are not believers by our own doing. We are not some sort of cavalry that has been called upon to ride in and save the day for the church. We are clearly not here because of our good looks or because of our education or our background or even our socioeconomic status. We are not here because God needed us. Rather, we are here as believers in Jesus Christ because of God, whom by his grace looked upon us, wretched sinners deserving the penalty of death, and he gave us his love and mercy through Christ Jesus our Lord, who died the death that we deserved. This is why Paul is able to say in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. You see, this is actually a praise God moment for us as believers where, like Paul, we can gather to praise him. We can gather to worship him. We can gather to thank him, not because of anything that we have done. Rather, we thank him and praise him for what he has done and what he continues to do within our lives. Paul moves from there into verse 13. And he says, though formerly I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and an insolent opponent. In fact, later in verse 14, in speaking of sinners, it would be Paul who would say of himself, in speaking of sinners, he would say, of whom I am the foremost. Now pay attention to what Paul's saying here. Paul is now getting into who it was he used to be. Now let us not forget for a moment who Paul was. 
You see, Paul was the great missionary. He was also the great writer of much of what we have in the New Testament. And yet he was the same guy who used to be the single greatest threat to the New Testament church. You see, it was Paul who oversaw the persecution of Stephen in Acts chapter 8. It was Paul who had devoted his life to arresting and imprisoning and killing Christians everywhere he could. And yet it would be Paul who, on his way to Damascus to kill Christians, it was on that road in Acts chapter 9 where he would ultimately meet Jesus Christ. That's why Paul is able to say later in verse 13, he says, but I have received mercy. You see, Paul acknowledges that God caused his grace to overflow to the one person who seemingly deserved it the least. So Paul's example, by his own words here, teaches us a lot about the nature of God's grace. You see, through Paul in writing to Timothy, we now learn that God's grace is unconditional. Paul did nothing to draw himself to God. In fact, it could be argued that Paul gave every reason for God to wipe him off the face of the earth. And so what Paul gives us here is he clearly teaches us that his salvation originated in God. You see, the same can be said of us today as believers in Christ. We are not saved on any condition in us. Rather, we are saved solely on the account of the sovereign grace in God. Now, I love what John Calvin says about this point. He says it this way. I should have nothing that might be fit for this office, which is to bear the gospel. But all my might, all my worthiness cometh from the mere grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, we as believers... We are who we are because of the unconditional grace of God. Now we move from there into verse 14. And Paul, in speaking even more of the grace of our Lord, says these words. He says, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. Now we are seeing from Paul that not only is God's grace unconditional, but it's also both patient and now purposeful. You see, God's grace produced faith and love within Paul's life. And so now Paul is teaching that God's love, or excuse me, Paul teaches here that God loves and calls sinners to believe in him for this eternal life. Now, this is good news for believers in Jesus Christ. You see, pay attention to the words here that Paul is You see, if we've ever been to a point or gotten to a point where we think that we are beyond the mercy of God, when we've ever gotten to a point where we say of one another that God could never forgive me for what it is that I have done, 
If we have family members or friends or neighbors who look to us and say, man, it's good that you have Jesus, but I know that Jesus will never forgive me for what it is that I have done, then let me make a brilliant theological point for you, and that is this, you are wrong. You are wrong. Even when we fight God, even when we think we cannot be forgiven, we need to remember that it was God who chose to take the chief persecutor of the church and make him the chief missionary within the church. If God can do that in Paul's life, then no matter where we are or no matter what it is that we have done, there is still hope in what Christ can do through us. Don't ever lose sight of that hope. You see, here's the reality, and we need to hear this today. No one is beyond the saving grace of our Lord. Not our family members, not our friends or our classmates or our co-workers, not even our neighbors. Thus why as believers in Jesus Christ, it should be our desire to open our homes and open our doors in order to share our faith with all that we come in contact with. Now Paul moves from there into verse 15 and he says these words the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance now what Paul is doing here is he's actually setting us up you see Paul now gives the central purpose of the call and the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and so he opens with this particular phrase by letting us know that the very next words he's about to write are true these words are reality, and in fact, Paul is saying these words are undeniable. And so what Paul is doing by this particular phrase is he's calling the readers to pay careful attention to what it is that he is about to say next. And so what Paul says is this, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Now, we've already discussed Paul and we've already covered Paul's past so let's leave that alone for a moment and let's look at the other phrase that Paul is teaching us about here you see Paul in this moment is now teaching us that the grace of God the good news of the gospel is both incarnational incarnational and undeniable now notice this when Paul uses the phrase Christ Jesus came Paul is now stating that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, didn't first come into being in Bethlehem. Rather, he already existed as the second person of the Trinity. He existed as the pre-existent, eternal Son of God that we read about in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. And so what Paul then goes on to say is that God committed what can be called the ultimate act of grace. You see, he sent the one who was with the Father in glory and now has put on the robe of human flesh and has now come to us. You see, this is the very 
basic definition of what is known as the incarnation. And so we have to ask ourselves at this point, why did Jesus come? Well, Paul tells us that he came to live a life that we could not live. He came to die a death that we deserved to die and to then rise in victory over the enemies that we ourselves could not conquer. And that was sin and death. And so what we have in verse 15 is the purpose of Jesus Christ. For the glory of God to save sinners like us. And yet at the same time, in verse 15, Paul now gives us the mission of every believer. And that is to tell the people the good news of Jesus Christ who came to save sinners like us. So as a church, we have to ask ourselves this question. How are we making the mission and the purpose of Jesus Christ known? You see, this is the basic tenet of every believer. In fact, we could argue that if, if we are not talking about the incarnation, if we are not talking about who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ has done, if we are not telling people about Jesus, then at what point do we need to begin to ask the question of ourselves, are we even followers to begin with? And this doesn't just go into telling our story, but rather we are to tell the story of who Jesus is, of what Jesus has done, and the victory that can be found in knowing Jesus as Lord. Paul moves from there into verse 16. And here we begin to see that this gospel of grace is now both personal and universal. Again, Paul points us back with his phrase, but I received mercy. Now notice that Paul is acknowledging that as a man who was at the top of the list of sinners, Christ Jesus still showed him mercy. But notice he doesn't stop there. Rather, he goes on to teach that this gospel is also universal by stating that his mercy is on display with his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him. So when asked the question, which sinners did Christ come for? The answer, according to Paul, is all sinners who would embrace his gospel fully. You see, the good news of Jesus Christ is for anyone and everyone who would believe in him. This would then lead Paul to verse 17 where he would write the following phrase to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. What we are seeing now is we are seeing how God's grace has now led to his praise. You see, this is Paul's response to his own salvation. This is Paul's response to the grace that has been shown to him in his life and therefore should be our response as well. And so through Paul here, we are seeing that God is royal and eternal. We are seeing that God is king, 
both now and he will be king forever. God is the one who never grows tired. God does not grow weary. God never changes. Death and decay, though may touch us, they will never touch our Lord and our Savior. He is beyond the scope and limits of what we could ever see or what it is that we could ever imagine. You see, no one compares with our God. He is the only God. And as Paul states, it is God who will receive honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You see, as the church, we're going to continue to see difficult times. This season with a pandemic, this season with COVID, this is not going to be an anomaly. In fact, if you woke up like I did this morning and you turned on the news, you probably started hearing about how other continents are now having a second wave or a third wave. Now, how it's going to cross the Atlantic Ocean, I don't know. But already we're seeing worry and concern beginning to build. So we are, we are only beginning to scratch the surface of how difficult things are going to be. Whether it be pandemics, whether it be politics, or whether it be just the arguments that then divide the church. Worry will remain. Concern will remain. Hurt, heartache, depression, they will remain. However... The head of the church, Christ Jesus, our God, our Savior, and our King, He will be forever on His throne. Though opposition and challenges may come for our church, Though churches may begin to lose the word in the name of being progressive, Though persecution will grow in this country and intensify in this place, we can rest in knowing that God is and will remain the king of the ages. It is God who will lead. It is God who will guide. It is God who will protect. It is God who will purify. It is God who will sanctify. And yes, it is God who will preserve his church. Why? Because he alone is sovereign. He alone has supreme authority. You see, Paul, through sharing his own story, through teaching of the grace of God, which ultimately leads to the praise of God, we are now shown that this gospel is trustworthy and this gospel is worthy to be celebrated. But Paul is not done there. You see, he moves into verses 18 through 20. And here Paul will begin to teach us that we must be willing to fight for the gospel. In fact, in verse 18, he gives us this phrase, that you may wage the good warfare. You see, Paul, in light of celebrating God, in light of celebrating his gracious purposes, now gives one final command in this chapter. He tells Timothy to be prepared to fight 
for the gospel. So as believers, like Timothy and Paul, we must be prepared to engage in battle for the sake of capital T truth, which is the word of God. In fact, Paul goes on to tell Timothy in verse 19 to hold faith and a good conscience during the battle. You see, here's the reality that we face today. It's very similar to what Timothy was facing and what the church at Ephesus was facing as Paul was writing. We are currently in a war for our lives. We are in a war for our marriages and within our own families. The battle is raging all around us. And so in a time where politics and culture is trying to label us as believers as enemies in a time where they're trying to redefine biblical terms we need to realize that this fight is not going away in fact I would argue that it is only going to intensify in other words here's a truth that we need to hold on to today it does not matter who wins on November 4th It does not matter who wins the next election because the battle will not go away once that day is determined. Rather, we would be wise in this moment, not only today, but on November 3rd and November 4th and November 5th and 6th and then the weeks to come, we would be wise to heed Paul's words when he spoke to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. And he says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You see, spiritual forces of evil are active. These forces are warring against our souls. You see, the devil himself is going to try to entice us into deceptions. He's going to incite us into divisions because he does not want the gospel to resound in our lives and in our marriages and in our families and, yes, even within our churches. You see, here's the truth. If the devil can get the church to divide and begin to fight internally, then he will not need to worry about the gospel getting out externally. You see, the battle for us as believers is going to look different in the days ahead. As believers, let us not be caught off guard. Let us not be caught by surprise in what it is that we are seeing and what it is that we are hearing. We've already been told this according to the word. Rather, we need to stand on truth. We need to fight the good fight and stand strong amidst the challenges that may come, whether they come from outside pressures or whether they come from within the church. In fact, I've said this a thousand times in our church, in this pulpit. If it comes to fighting and if we are going to fight anything as a church, then let us fight for unity. If we are going to fight for anything in the church, then let us fight for biblical, God-honoring truth. You see, that 
is where our battle lies. We are seeing sin issues all around us. And it doesn't matter what title or name society gives to it. The reality is these sin issues are around us and they exist because there is a lack of biblical truth being spoken in a country that now tells us it is taboo to speak of religion. Now moving into verse 20, Paul now makes his point clear. He gives us the example of Hymenius and Alexander. These two men were labeled among the false teachers in Ephesus. Clearly, what we know of them is that both of them had wandered away from the gospel. In fact, many scholars have argued and believed that these men served at one particular point as elders within the church in Ephesus. And so verse 20 is a great reminder for us today. No pastor, no elder, no deacon, no teacher, no leader, no member is exempt from Paul's warning. You see, none of us are immune to the temptations of false teaching. So coming back to our text, Paul actually closes with a very interesting phrase. And speaking of these two men, he says, whom I have handed over to Satan. I'm going to go ahead and tell you, at first glance, when you read this in the Bible, that sounds awful. I mean, could you imagine that type of conversation today? Imagine if, if, uh, if somebody walked in and they looked around the room and they said, hey, where's Jonathan? And they come up and they ask me as the pastor, hey, pastor, where's Jonathan? And I say, oh, we've handed him over to Satan. How do you think that conversation's going to go? Well, how does that work? Is he in the back room? Oh, that's possible. It sounds terrible, right? But pay attention to what Paul's saying here. We have to understand what he's trying to communicate to us. You see, these two men, these two leaders, were being excommunicated from the church as listed out according to the rules of church discipline that are found in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and again in Matthew chapter 18. And so we can assume by this point that every attempt had been made to restore these men from their sin and these men refused to acknowledge their sin. And so they chose their sin over God and now there was nothing more for the church to do than to remove them from fellowship. Now these men were not cast out from the church just because. They were cast out because they were separated from Jesus Christ. Now, from the church's perspective, by casting these men out, the hope wasn't to then turn them over to watch them burn. The hope wasn't to see them all of a sudden walk out, lock the doors and say, thank God we got rid of those two. Let's celebrate their downfall. Who brought fried chicken? Rather, in turning these men over to Satan, the hope and the prayer for the church was that these men would realize their error, that they would return to Jesus Christ in humility so that restoration of these men to the church could actually begin. 
You see, Paul here is literally telling Timothy and telling the church that you and the church must take severe measures at certain times to fight for this gospel. And when those times come, you take them. You see, we simply can't sweep sin under a rug. It needs to be addressed. It needs to be rooted out. Because if we were honest with ourselves, wouldn't we rather root sin out of our lives now than on the day of judgment when we stand before the throne of God? You see, Paul understood that this gospel was meant to be celebrated. And yet at the same time, this gospel was to be fought for. And so as a church, how are we doing at celebrating the gospel? How are we doing at defending and fighting for the gospel? You see, Paul has now taught Timothy and us today that, again, this gospel is worth celebrating. It's worth celebrating because God's grace is found in the good news of Jesus Christ. And because of this good news, he alone is worthy of praise. And at the same time, this good news is valuable enough for us to fight for. So whatever we do as believers in Christ, let us hold fast to the word of God and to the gospel. You see, it is the gospel that draws us here as believers. It is the gospel that unites the church, and it is the gospel that sustains the people of God. You see, this gospel is worth guarding. This gospel is worth defending, and yes, this gospel is worth celebrating. My prayer is that we as believers would be reminded every time we gather that this book, this word, this gospel, this is a trustworthy saying. Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you right now thanking you so much for this day. And Father, we thank you for the opportunities that we've had over these next few moments just to reflect over your word. Father, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this gospel. We thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray that as a church that we would celebrate this good news that we would remember that every Sunday when we gather, we gather because of the good news. But Father, at the same time, help us to be fervent in our defense of the word. Help us to see these words as valuable and precious. God, I praise your people as we grow in our understanding of who you are. May we take delight in studying your word. May we celebrate your word. God, may we be a people who defend 
your word, knowing that we stand on the promise of you, our solid rock and redeemer. Father, we praise you for the good days. We thank you for the blessings that you've provided for us. But Father, we recognize and acknowledge that hard days may come. In fact, they may await us. Trials and tribulations will come. And so, Father, we ask that in those days, instead of looking around to a society and a culture that clearly doesn't have the answer, may we look to you to seek your truth according to your word, to see your face, knowing that no matter what happens, you are king of kings. You are sovereign over all. Father, we ask that you would continue to be with us, continue to speak to us through your word. And Father, as we close out our service today, Father, we pray that you and you alone in these next few moments would be glorified. Jesus, we love you. We thank you. We thank you for your word. Thank you for the fact that we can trust in your word. Father, we praise you. For it's in your precious and holy name we pray. Amen.